It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength conditioning and strength conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This week on episode 215 of our podcast, we're going to discuss the extreme exercise hypothesis. The health benefits of regular exercise are indisputable. However, there's debate about the possibility that very high volumes of exercise may, over time, be unhealthy. For example, a number of studies have shown that many lifters and endurance athletes exhibit a number of changes to the heart that are consistent with increased risk of heart disease when seen in the general population. Do these changes represent a real risk? Can you exercise too much? And does this type of messaging affect participation in exercise? All this and more on this week's Barbell Medicine Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts, trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes. Choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Pioneer has belts to fit your needs, whether it's a 13mm thick, 4-inch wide belt for powerlifting like me, a Velcro hybrid belt for CrossFit, and everything in between. They'll also custom make belts to your specifications. I bought and paid for a new belt from them last year and been very impressed with both the performance and quality. All products are made in the USA. Check them out at generalleathercraft.com and support those who support us. This podcast is also brought to you by Bells of Steel, maker of high-quality exercise equipment that won't break the bank. Established in 2010 and located in Indianapolis, Indiana, Bells of Steel's mission is to help you get stronger, healthier, and more muscle for your hard-earned dollar. Bells of Steel has a ton of cool products for outfitting your home gym, including calibrated iron plates, air bikes, belt squat machines, racks, and much, much more. If for whatever reason you don't love your new equipment, Bells of Steel offers a 30-day money-back guarantee to return your order, and they'll even pay the shipping back. Check them out at bellsofsteel.us and use the code BBM23 to get 10% off selected items. This podcast is also brought to you by Viore. Viore makes super high-quality, versatile clothing for inside and outside the gym for both men and women. I'm absolutely in love with their fleet pants and core shorts. If you know me, you know I'm pretty picky about the stuff I train in, and both of these items are super comfortable and super durable with the type of training that I do. I've also been wearing their Rise Tee in and outside of the gym, which fits better than more expensive shirts I've tried before. Viore also sources sustainable materials for their products and offsets their carbon footprint 100%. Head over to their website, viore.com backslash barbell, to get 20% off your first order. All right, we're here with the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, man? Hey, man, I'm doing okay. I, I thought when you were doing your intro there, you were going to really lean into the, the extreme aspect of this exercise. Like I thought about it, you know, to us when we were kids and everything had to be extreme. Dude. Okay. So <laughs> I feel like ESPN really capitalized on this in like the <laughs> mid to late nineties, early two thousands when they were like, you know, extreme sports are a thing. Let's, yeah. Everything's got to be X That's or right. extreme. Uh, I it just worked. don't have, yeah, no, I know. I think if I, maybe I go back, do that intro again, I could do extreme <laughs> and cue it with some like hard rock you know, or whatever <laughs> appeals to the youth. Anyway, uh, what's going on, man? You're in the hospital? In the hospital until for two more days and then I'll get a little bit of a break. So this has been one of my busier, busier stretches. I've had a lot more, um, a lot more patients rolling through the hospital than usual, a lot of variety of pathology and, and been doing a ton of teaching with my team and my students and, and things are things are going all right. Any, any people get admitted to the hospital due to extreme exercise? I would say 100% of the patients who I've admitted are more suffering from inadequate exercise than extreme I, exercise. I see. Yes. All right. Well, that, that makes sense. <laughs> uh, I, re- I just got back from Austin, Texas, not to be confused with Austin Baraki, the person um, for the Powerlifting America Nationals. Claire Zai competed in the 69 kilo class. Uh, heartbreaker of a meet. Uh, for her, she, her training was going really well leading into that. And then, you know, you got to show up and, and, and do the lifts, you know, you can't just mail in the attempts and say, this is what I, I did in training. And so that's why you, that's why you, you show up to the meet and the uh, stars and must align. That's the whole thing. Right. And, and actually I was thinking about this, uh, on my flight back, you think about power lifters, uh, or other strength athletes across a wide variety of barbell sports, their life, their, some parts of their identity, 
um, all revolve around getting better at sport, getting stronger. And if you look at like the arc over their career, as far as like their lifts and their totals and performances, you know, it doesn't look like this linear, like increase over time. It looks like more of a, you know, plateau for a while than, Ooh, good one. Ooh, bad one. Ooh, good one. Ooh. Mm -hmm. And these are people that again, dedicate significant portions of their life, uh, not only just executing the training and, and competing, but also perseverating over every lifestyle detail that may go into performance. And even sometimes for them, it doesn't all always work out. And so, you know, we get all these questions on our forum, which by the way, if you have questions that remain unanswered from either this podcast, other podcasts, or anything we've published, pop it on our forum is a good way to get in touch with us. Uh, they're like, why my bench isn't going up. And it's like, well, there may be some readily identifiable factors there, you know, and we can look at aspects of the programming, aspects of your technique, aspects of stuff going on outside the gym and kind of come up with an answer. But also sometimes it may just be like that, and especially in populations who are not dedicating a substantial portion of their life and lifestyle to the, you know, sole goal of just getting stronger. And I'm, I, you know, uh, Hassan, I don't know if, do you remember when we did our San Diego seminar and I like interviewed all of the coaches and like yeah, 10, yeah. 10 questions. And it's like, yeah. one of the questions was like, Hey, if your squat and deadlift are going up at your benches and going up, like, what would you do? And he's, and Hassan was like, yeah, sometimes it just be like that. You just take, <laughs> take what you get and, and move on. And, and I, you know, I don't want to be flippant to people's concerns about their performance and their arc, but it's like, yeah, that's real. That's real life. Everybody wants to feel like they have full control over these things, much like, you know, we've talked about a lot of things in the context of obesity and other health related topics. You want to feel like you can control all the variables and that is a, a delusion. You cannot control all of these things. I, I mean, I experienced this in when I swam for a long time, you'd train an entire year to swim like 20 <laughs> ish seconds or something like that to maybe drop a 10th off of your all time best mm -hmm. time. And then maybe you just don't. And it's like, well, <laughs> yeah. You know, well, they, talk, they talk about this all the time in golf as well. It's like, you can, you know, you can practice a swing change. You can practice course management. You can practice all these things, but the majority of the sport is actually outside of your control. You yeah. get to control how you hit the ball, you know, the strike. But then once it's in the air, everything's outside of your control. You got wind, right. you know, conditions of the ground, all this other sort of stuff that you don't actively have any control over. And so you just kind of, all right, the result is what it is. Take the data, put it in the, in the memory bank and, and move from there. And so, and, and, and we've been, both been watching this uh, Netflix show. You're probably already through it full yep. swing on golf, which has been entertaining, uh, but also just interesting to see, you know, these guys who are like just super hot, uh, you know, top 10 finishes, you know, one after another, after, and then they're just like in a hole and, and they just like lose their minds. And then all of a sudden some other dude just pops up out of nowhere and he just like starts crushing it. And this, the, the way they walk on the golf course looks different when they're like, you know, doing well compared to not and throwing clubs all over the place when things are down and it's, you know, it's tough. It's absolutely wild. Yeah. If you're on the PGA tour, you're one of the top 125 players in the world to have like to have your PGA tour status and to win a tournament, not only do you have to be one of the best in the world, but you also have to be playing out of your mind. And it's <laughs> right. like, and that's what we see on TV when we're watching it, you know, and we're like, wow. So that's like a realistic expectation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and not only are we not that good, uh, you know, not even close, but also the, the odds are that you're, you know, playing out of your mind. You're on the right tail of that bell curve for your performance is like, yeah, unlikely, but you know, to re relate this back to training, you know, we have a ton of like templates and, and we obviously offer one-on-one coaching and, um, you know, we do our best to try to make sure people 
improve their performance, get what they want out of their training, et cetera. But it's, it's definitely not in your control to, you know, get particular outcomes a hundred percent of the time. It's just, sometimes it do be like that, even if, yep. even if we don't want that, but yeah. we try to equip people as best as possible. But anyway, enough on that. We have new content on the website, a new article on headaches that uh, is recent published uh, Monday, so a few days ago on our website. So you can check that out. It's linked in the description below. Also have a new newsletter that went out, I believe it was either Monday or Tuesday. If you're not signed up for our newsletter list, I put a link to the active, actual newsletter on metabolic rate and body fat testing um, in addition to ways to sign up for our newsletter. It's just content, unique content that's never been published anywhere else and uh you can get that delivered to your uh, inbox relatively uh, regularly. And then we also have new YouTube videos up on our YouTube channel. So all that stuff is linked in the description below, or you could just Google Marble Medicine and you'll get linked ideally to, to this stuff. I don't know if you, it depends on your Google search history, maybe like the algorithm may take you to some <laughs> other stuff that we're not really in charge of. But, uh, and then finally, yeah, another plug for our app. If you have uh, an iPhone, your blue bubble gang, um, you can find all of our material, all of our templates, all of our programs, everything on the app. Um, and if you're curious, like, oh, what template should I try? Or am I interested in this template versus this other template? Not only are there descriptions, but you can actually try the first week for free uh, on all of our templates. So if you've got like a lingering pain uh, or injury issue and you want to try one of our rehab templates, you can see if the first week is well suited for you for free. Uh, or if you want to try one of our other templates, yeah, it's all there on the app. Just search Barbell Medicine in the Apple App Store and uh, you can download to your phone and do app things after that i think that's just that's the umbrella term for what people are doing on the smartphone app app things okay so this podcast is again about the extreme exercise hypothesis uh austin just you know nonchalantly said hey you know what maybe we'll uh, do something about this uh, extreme exercise hypothesis and you just sent me on my way 12 pages later of an outline I, I am 85% certain that this is going to switch into a two-parter. So this may be episodes 215 and 216. We'll actually see how long this goes. Um, and so no promises, but but that's the way it's trending. So let's start off with a definition. What is the extreme exercise hypothesis? And actually, before I define it, Austin, like, how did you get wind of this hypothesis? Have you been aware of this for some time or somebody sent you like, hey, what thoughts? Like yeah, I, I mean, I think that through. conversations around like, are there risks or downsides to certain kinds of exercise, be it, you know, at the at the highest or most extremes of intensity or at the highest extremes of volume, like, is there some eventual not just diminishing return to benefit, but like, does that curve kind of turn around and, and start to become harmful? That's been a uh, an idea that's been discussed for a while. And then I think um, some publications came across my radar through my, my usual channels of keeping up with the uh, literature. Uh, I think this was more in, in, in relation to where I keep up with like cardiology aspects and things like that. So um, that was how I, I, I uh, kind of uh, came to the front of mind and I suggested it to you as a potentially interesting topic for us to look into and discuss. Did you think that the outline was going to turn into a 12-page manifesto of notes? Or <laughs> I mean, I did not predict that, but I am uh, on the back end unsurprised that that is how it turned out. And I suspect it could have been much longer as well. <laughs> correct. Correct. Yeah, definitely want to turn this into an article series um, just because I think this is useful for people to have access to in written form uh, that could probably be communicated a little more a little bit more thoroughly for each point rather than just this audio thing with that while it might go on for hours and i'll be there 
uh, just, you know, people tend to miss that stuff. unless it's. But my uh, understanding is these days, everybody wants like four or five hour podcasts. You know, I, I heard that recently. <laughs> I, I will say there is one podcast that I listen to every week that is about five hours in length. And I don't do it all in one setting, but between, you know, downtime, if I'm either eating or, you know, out for a walk or in my car, like it's that or an audiobook. and it's on motocross. It's not science based <laughs> at all. I'm just like, that's the like one sport I really, really keep up with. And, yeah. uh, but yeah, five hours. I'm like, that, that's I, I, I emailed the guy <laughs> that is maybe that extreme podcast hypothesis. I sent the guy an email. I go, Hey dude, when you sit down to record five hour episodes, like what's your Like, what are you thinking about? You know, like you just you, you go through, you blacked out, and at the end you're like, okay, that's it. I completely blacked out for five hours. I don't know. I just if if I uh, asked you to do a five hour podcast, I think you'd resign on the spot. I think you'd just <laughs> nope. Particularly if it was about powerlifting for five hours. I, well, <laughs> I had a. This is the last thing I'll say before we actually pop into this week's podcast. I was just on the Rich Summers uh, report. Uh, he's a guy who lives locally to me down here in uh, San Diego and he's a real estate guy. And he, normally his podcast apparently are about like entrepreneurship or real estate market investing. Uh, I know a little bit about entrepreneurship, but I know nothing about real estate investment. In any case, he slid in my DMs and was like, Hey, do you want to come on my show? I'm like, yeah, sure. I literally walked around the corner, popped in his office. We recorded a show and he told me he's like, he, at the beginning, he goes, yes, yeah, so is mostly going to be about mindset, entrepreneurship. You seem like, you know, a good person for that and i was like oh yeah all right yeah we can can talk about my you know what i did and whatever it was an hour and a half of health related questions just everything from like when should i take caffeine and how much is like good versus bad uh working out time of day like which you know what's (laughs) best um longevity all sorts of stuff and i and to be fair i didn't mind that because my expertise is more decidedly in that realm than like entrepreneurship but uh at the end i go hey man what happened to this entrepreneurship kind of kind of thing he goes i don't know i got i got excited you're like a walking encyclopedia and i was like i don't know if that's a you know a positive trait or not anyway all right back to the extreme exercise hypothesis so this basically states uh, or is a finding in some epidemiological studies that have reported an increased risk of disease and or mortality at the highest exercise volumes, which suggests that the health benefits of an active lifestyle may plateau or even decline in those who are classified as, quote unquote, extreme exercisers. Uh, The conditions most commonly associated with extreme exercise, again, in quotations, are myocardial fibrosis, coronary artery calcification, atrial fibrillation, and athlete's heart. There have been various criteria that have tried to quantify the amount of volume of exercise that qualifies as extreme QS ESPN music, but there's no agreed upon definition. So some studies use the met minute. Austin, you want to take people through what a met is and what a met minute is? Yeah. To refresh people's memory, if they've been listening to the podcast, I think it's probably something that's that's come up before. But the idea is that we can compare different types of physical activities based on their energy demands. And so one met um, is basically defined as the amount of energy that you are expending when you are sitting at rest doing nothing. And we can this can be multiplied um, based on the energy demands of an activity. So a met is equivalent to one kilocalorie per kilogram of body weight per hour. And then five times that, a five met activity would use five times that much energy. And then you can basically multiply the amount of energy that that activity is using by the amount of time that you are doing it for. So in other words, five METs 
times 20 minutes can give you 100 met minutes of total energy expenditure. And the scale keeps going all the way up. You know, we have, we have uh, you know, estimates of, of energy expenditure for activities going up to about 20 mets or so, uh, like rowing at uh, 12 and a half miles per hour, representing about 20 mets. Obviously, you can keep going up higher than that, but, you know, there's a lot more fuzziness to those kind of measurements. So when we, when we have um, you know, we're trying to provide general public health recommendations to folks as far as exercise, uh, that the guidelines offer a met minute target per week for people. So 500 to 1000 met minutes of activity per week is what is typically recommended in the physical activity guidelines. Yeah. For conditioning in particular. So basically it's just saying, look, you can do any type of moderate to vigorous physical activity, uh, as long as you're achieving or attaining at least 500 to a thousand met minutes per week. And yeah, some studies to classify extreme exercisers use met minutes in literature. You'll see everything from 2000 met minutes per week. So like four times the, the, the recommendation uh, level to up to over 10 times the current recommendations, which would be 5,000 plus met minutes per week. But there's no like hard cutoff, like, Ooh, once you go over four times the limit, that's extreme. Or once you go over seven times, that's extreme. Just different authors making up different cut points for, I assume convenience sake, you know, they're like, all right, we have a clear group that's at 10 times the level. Uh, we have another clear group at five times the level, another clear group at the level and another clear group below the level. I, I don't actually know. I didn't poll a bunch of authors, but I just assume it's based on convenience. So that's one way it's defined in the literature. Um, other studies use lifelong training exposure, which I don't even want to get into how they decided this. And like, <laughs> so for example, a study investigating the risk of exercise induced atrial fibrillation found that lifelong exposure to vigorous endurance training at a volume of greater than 2000 hours lifetime was the most powerful predictor of them getting atrial fibrillation. I assume that they gave them some sort of like retrospective recall. They're like, Hey, on average, how many time, how many hours a week do you exercise? And how many years have you been doing this for? It's kind of like, it's like the pack year smoking thing, you know, it's like, but the, but additionally, I mean, the, we'll, we'll get into this more later, but like the only one, one very important factor that allows you to be able to accumulate greater than 2000 hours of vigorous intensity at uh, endurance activity over your lifespan is like be, becoming old, like living a while. <laughs> yeah, and right. A lot, and most people with atrial fibrillation are old. <laughs> yeah. I, I, it is one of the most common, you know, heart things that I see in my hospitalized patients, and uh, none of them are doing <laughs> high volumes of lifelong vigorous intensity, you know, uh, uh, exercise. So not, not not discounting any relationship with AFib here at all. We'll, again, we'll get into that later, but it's just as you say, very very complicated to try to tease this stuff apart uh, longitudinally, retrospectively, whatever the case is. Yep, I agree. And then there are others still that use sessions per week. So a study that looked at the thickness, size, and function of the heart's left ventricle separated folks uh, into those who exercised two sessions per week or less, uh, to those who exercised two to three times per week, to those who exercised four to five times per week, and then compared all of those to folks who exercised six to seven times per week. And it's like, yeah, but like how long were each was each session, you know? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> like, what counts as a session at all? At, yeah. at what intensity? And so it's like, you know, there's no... <laughs> real definition of the extreme exercise hypothesis. And so it's off to a rough start without a common definition, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's not a thing either. It's just that you would like an agreed upon definition that is objective uh, and that can be you know, used in subsequent studies 
so we can get a better handle on this. Uh, so what we'll do in this podcast is go through the most commonly identified changes. So like I said at the beginning, myocardial fibrosis, coronary artery calcification, atrial fibrillation, and athlete's heart among people who exercise a lot and see if these adaptations are a feature of exercise, which means that they improve performance with no ill effect on health, or if they're a bug, meaning they do increase risk of unwanted outcomes like heart disease or mortality from a major adverse cardiac event like a heart attack. So exercise-related adaptations, bug or feature? Let's start out with myocardial fibrosis. Uh, Austin, what is myocardial fibrosis? Uh, if I wanted to give the like very simple answer up front, you can kind of think of it sort of like scarring uh, or accumulation of scar tissue. If we want to get more sciencey about it, then you would describe it as something like collagen infiltration into the muscular layers of the heart. And this can happen for a whole bunch of reasons. We can see fibrosis due to inflammation um, or in the aftermath of something like a heart attack um, or various other uh, stressors or toxins or other kind of things that are injurious to the, to the heart muscle. Um, so that's kind of the more, the more complicated answer. Yeah. You know, it's funny. So it's, you got this like collagen that's not supposed to be there that's been inserted into the heart due to some sort of damage, right? And, uh, you know, nobody who's talking about collagen supplements is talking about, like, <laughs> hey, funny. maybe that maybe that collagen actually travels to the heart, infiltrates the myocardium, and then you get this <laughs> fibrosis. No, it, it, it knows to go to your knees and not to your LV. So. Yeah, these are, these are smart. <laughs> these are smart collagen amino acids. That's what they are. Uh, that's for another podcast. But yeah, so okay, in normal healthy individuals without a history of heart disease, there's usually little to no sign of myocardial fibrosis on MRI. That's re really where you would see it. Basically, you take a picture of the heart using an MRI, and you can see areas or a focal area, so a small area of fibrosis. Uh, however, the general population is not 100% healthy, as you may or may not be aware of. And in the largest study of non-athletes to date, the presence of myocardial fibrosis is somewhere between 7 to 20% in the general adult population, which is basically a way to say the general population has either had heart disease at some point, a heart attack, has had myocarditis, something else, or some other sort of condition that causes myocardial fibrosis. So again, not 100% of the population is free from myocardial fibrosis, uh, but in general, you would not expect to see myocardial fibrosis in somebody who was previously healthy, asymptomatic, and hasn't had a history of these things. But sometimes yeah, and, there, and there and there may be you know some component of age related changes as we have seen in like spine imaging, for example. Mm -hmm. That by the time you're like you know 95 years old, if if I was to find some of that, I would probably not be super surprised whether or not they had a known prior history of those things. Maybe they had you know a subclinical version of those things, or like that was not generating generating symptoms that led them to get seen and evaluated at the time, or you know perhaps it just kind of happens over time. Yeah. So like a silent MI, for example, or my un, you know, unreported myocarditis, something like that. Yeah. Could all happen. So let's see uh, what happens with respect to myocard myocardial fibrosis uh, in athletes. So in one study, they took 12 veteran male endurance athletes with an average age of 56 uh, and compared them to 20 age match controls. They all got cardiac MRIs. Uh, in this study, uh, six of the veteran athletes showed myocardial fibrosis, so half of them. Four from nonspecific causes, and they basically identified that due to the pattern of fibrosis seen on MRI. One uh, from a probable previous myocarditis, again, because that has a specific signature or pattern on cardiac MRI, and one from a likely previous silent myocardial infarction, so heart attack, again, because it has a specific signature and sort of finding on cardiac MRI. Uh, none of the age-matched controls actually had this finding. So already we're starting to see the signal that, hey, maybe athletes 
do have an increased risk of myocardial fibrosis. Uh, the same study actually also performed cardiac MRIs on 17 younger endurance athletes and uh, additional controls that were age matched. The average age there was 31. None of them, either the controls or the athletes, had any evidence of myocardial fibrosis on MRI. And so that kind of speaks to maybe something you were mentioning earlier that, hey, the older you get, you might actually see this finding, you know, become more common. But uh, T to be determined on that. But the conclusion by these authors was that myocardial fibrosis was correlated with the number of years spent training, the number of competitive marathons, and the number of ultra, uh, ultra endurance marathons that have been completed. So that's like one tally mark in favor of more myocardial fibrosis in athletes. Another study compared 102 athletes to 102 sedentary controls and found that myocardial fibrosis was present in 12% of the athletes compared to 4% of the controls. And a systematic review that identified 14 studies and 19 case reports, which in total uh, included 509 athletes who had been scanned with a cardiac MRI. The overall prevalence of myocardial fibrosis was 5.9% in athletes. So what's all this mean? It may be that athletes have a higher prevalence of myocardial fibrosis than age-matched insufficiently active controls, but we can't be sure from the existing data. We need a larger data set comparing athletes who exercise a lot compared to those who exercise a little compared to those who don't exercise at all to really find anything here. This, along with detailed information about how the individuals were actually exercising, so like what were they doing and for how long, would allow us to discern if there's a relationship between exercise type and or volume and or intensity and myocardial fibrosis risk. The uh, other the other aspect there, obviously, you know, it's easy to be very picky about the kinds of studies that you would want to see that may or may not ultimately ever get done. Sure. But if they did something like that, you would also prefer it be prospective, meaning moving forward over time with these people so that you could, um, you know, see the extent to which or whether this issue develops over time. And then you'd also be, you know, able to see, uh, you know, correlate it with, for example, oh, this person had a, an actual heart attack or something that explains it rather than the exercise. Whereas yeah. when we have these like big retrospective where it's like collect all these people or it's just like a snapshot in time, it's like something could have happened at any point in their life in the past and they may not know. And yeah. that, you know, could, could relate to it, but yeah. easy to say we want all these things, but uh, unlikely to get any of them. <laughs> yeah. So, so there's some problems with the data thing. One thing two. When we actually look at the data that we have currently and the pattern of myocardial fibrosis, i.e. where it's located and what it looks like on MRI, that can actually clue the doctor in on why it's present and also needs to be included in the future study. So you can't just say, oh, they have myocardial fibrosis. You need to know where it was and what it looked like. Uh, so for example, fibrosis after something like a heart attack leaves a specific signature. So it's typically in the subendocardial region, um, as this region of the heart tissue is most vulnerable to reduce blood flow from the coronary arteries that supply the heart with blood. Similarly, myocarditis, which is inflammation of the muscular layer of the heart during or after an infection, has its own signature. Uh, and the same with chronically high blood pressure and other causes of fibrosis. They're all in like individual, like specific areas that kind of clue the doctor in like, hey, this is the reason why this person has myocardial fibrosis, although they probably already knew that before they ordered the cardiac MRI in the first place. Sometimes, it, sometimes. yeah. Yeah, uh, so clinically speaking, uh, or sorry, in contrast, nonspecific myocardial fibrosis in the right ventricle or septum, which is the most common finding in athletes who don't have a previous history of heart disease, uh, it's thought that this increase, that the increase in venous return to the heart during exercise, particularly long duration, sustained endurance exercise may be responsible for this finding, but more study with an eye towards the pattern, the location and the extent of fibrosis is necessary to really find out. Um, but anyway, in a, in a clinical sense, we know that myocardial fibrosis is a risk factor for things like future heart attacks and heart failure in the general population, but we don't really know 
what the prognostic significance is of nonspecific myocardial fibrosis that's seen in athletes. Again, just that the region where the fibrosis occurs and the pattern and signature that we see typically in athletes based on this limited data, we don't really know what that means. It's like prognostic wise. So I don't know. I could I envision a situation where somebody's getting like one of those executive physicals and they end up getting a cardiac MRI <laughs> and it's like an incidental yeah. finding. Yeah. Like, oh yeah, you got a little myocardial fibrosis in your right ventricle or the interventricular septum over there. Uh, so Austin, if you found that incidentally, not that you would ever order this, but let's just say, <laughs> and the patient was otherwise asymptomatic, what would your next move be? Yeah, this this is a tricky one. Um, it, it's not something you're right that ever really happens because people don't order cardiac MRIs by accident on people, um, and and this is not really a finding that tends to show up as obviously on a, on a lot of a lot of other things. Um, but I think that I would be taking a, a a really good history on that person and trying to get a sense of, you know, do they have risk factors or symptoms that may suggest one of the known causes of myocardial fibrosis? For example, do they have a ton of you know um, atherosclerosis related risk factors that could have led them to develop plaque and potentially have a heart attack. Do they have, you know, chronic high blood pressure? Do they have any kind of autoimmune type disease or, you know, infiltrative diseases that can get into the heart muscle and things like that. So really it would be just like delving into what are the known causes of this? And does this patient have any of these kind of things? And if I keep coming up empty handed across the board on all of those things, then it might be a situation where as does tend to happen with these kind of incidental findings is like, well, now that we ha- now that we know about this, we're kind of stuck paying attention to it over time. So we'll just monitor it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, I mean, given that most available research shows greater health benefits with greater exercise doses, my feeling is that managing the known risk factors as best as possible and encouraging as much exercise as possible, at least to meet or exceed the current physical activity guidelines is likely the move. But I, I just am not convinced that like this, these incidental findings, because these people were enrolled in a study actually mean much like to the non-specific myocardial fibrosis that's not clearly due to another cause or series of risk factors that the person also has it's like a shoulder shrug emoji i'm just like interesting but uh not concerning i should say this i scoured the research for resistance training induced myocardial fibrosis um, not associated with any sort of previous heart disease or uh, uh or myocarditis or anything and i could not find anything that doesn't mean that they're not terribly surprised at that, but well, yeah, that's yeah. the whole thing. And, and we'll kind of keep coming back to that. Cause you, you know, it's barbell medicine. We're, you know, we're trying to figure out like what happens if you, when you lift weights, but couldn't find anything. And so I don't know that there's a zero risk of myocardial, myocardial fibrosis and that nonspecific sort of pattern or signature from resistance training, but I can't find anything on it. So yeah. to be continued. All right, let's move forward here on episode 215 of the barbell medicine podcast. Let's talk about coronary artery calcification, Austin, what is coronary artery calcification? So in the, the most common uh, context that this is being used in is when people develop um, atherosclerotic plaque. And that's something that we have talked about a bunch before when you have uh, lipoproteins that carry cholesterol around your bloodstream and those can penetrate the walls of our blood vessels, deposit some cholesterol there that can induce an inflammatory immune reaction, and that can lead to the development of a plaque. When that plaque um, is kind of relatively uh, uh, young or immature, um, it can have a lot of uh, lipid or or fatty uh, substances in there, including the cholesterol and some inflammation going on. And then the body kind of responds to this over time. It it responds to the retention of this cholesterol in the blood vessel walls 
in, in various ways. There's some smooth muscle that can proliferate over the top of the plaque and various other things can happen. And in some situations, um, these areas can actually become calcified where calcium gets deposited um, in and around that area. And so the calcium is uh, obviously a mineral that we know of mostly from you know its, its presence in bone. And that's something that uh, bone tends to light up bright white on imaging tests like x-rays and CT scans. And so as a result, there are some tests that can be used to examine the degree, um, the distribution, the amount, and the locations of, um, of calcified plaque. So I get, you know, CT scans on patients all the time in the hospital for other reasons, like looking for, you know, if they have abdominal pain or looking for a blood clot in the lungs or something like that. And I might see in their aorta or in their coronary arteries, I might see a whole bunch of white speckles all over there. And I'll typically pull my med medical student over and point at it and ask them if they know what that is. And that ends up being evidence of calcified plaque that these patients have. Nobody um, says it's a heart bone. It's fortunately the students, by the time they get to me, they're not giving me those kind of answers. All right. But, but that's something that can be done is imaging tests to look for the degree, the amount, and the distribution of uh, calcium deposition, um, which is presumed to be in areas where there's also plaque accumulation. That's, that's one way of testing and screening for, you know, cardiovascular disease. And like, how confident would you be saying, uh, be, how confident would you feel in saying that the degree of calcification in the arteries, so the amount and degree of calcification in the arteries is predictive of heart disease or risk of unwanted cardiac outcome? Yeah. Um, I'm going to give the, the annoying answer and it's going to be an, it depends situation, oh but I will elaborate. Um, the, the issue is that again, atherosclerosis, this plaque accumulation, um, in this is, is a disease of aging, basically like typical, you know, what we would call common, you know, cardiovascular disease, not due to like, you know, a single genetic mutation or something is something that we see accumulate and progress over the course of the lifespan. Because as we've talked about on previous podcasts, it relates to many risk factors like smoking and high blood pressure and diabetes, but you can have it without any of those things. But it also relates to the lifelong exposure to these cholesterol carrying lipoproteins. And so that risk can accumulate over decades, which is why most heart attacks that we see run of the mill tend to be in the, you know, maybe 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, you know, range, mostly in the middle to later end of that. Um, whereas if it's earlier than that, it really gets our attention of like somebody in their 40s or their 30s or their 20s. We're like, is something else going on? Do they have genetic things that would really predispose them to this? And so if I'm being asked to look at or interpret a coronary calcium, you know, score, I do want to know what's the context, who's the patient, why was this checked, et cetera, et cetera. But if I see a CAC score of zero, for example, which is, you know, meaning that there's no evident calcium and the patient is, you know, 18 years old, that doesn't tell me anything because I expect them to have none. Um, and so that does not change my interpretation of their lifelong risk of heart disease because they are like on the same trajectory that I would expect for anybody else. At the same time, if somebody were, for some reason, which I do not recommend, were to get a CAC score on an 88-year-old and it showed a whole bunch of calcium, I'm going to like, yeah, that fits. That is pretty much what I would expect by this age. And so that does also not tell me much. At that point, it's basically just a surrogate for age. And if you play around with cardiovascular risk you know, uh, estimation calculators... The strongest predictor of risk ends up being age. If you play with the age variable, then you end up seeing you know, how that impacts their overall risk. However, the converse of those situations does get my attention. If I had somebody who was young, say, for some reason in their 20s, getting a CAC score, which again, you shouldn't, but if they did, or if it was in their 30s or something like that, and it had like a high burden of calcium, then I am like, what in the world is going on here? This is 
this is confusing. This is not what I expect. And so then I'm going to be looking into that a bit further. And then the other converse scenario is somebody, say, who's in their 50s or their 60s or something like that, who may actually get it. I, I typically don't do, don't routinely do them in patients who are in their 60s. I don't do them routinely at all. But if somebody in that age range did and their CAC score was zero, I'd be like, huh, all right, you're kind of bucking the trend here. I'm feeling a little better about you. This isn't to say that you have no plaque at all because it is possible to have non-calcified plaque, but it just tells me that um, they are likely not at as high of risk as is somebody in their age demographic who has a significantly higher calcium score. So that hopefully that made sense. Yeah. Yeah. And so the way that the studies that we'll discuss now uh, kind of compare different CAC scores, so CAC standing for coronary artery calcification scores, uh, either compares them to the people who exercise in an extreme level versus people who don't exercise uh, or compares the values found in these extreme exercising individuals to normative data that does exist for age, gender, and other sort of uh, uh, factors that have all been collated into like a big database. And so that's what that's how you can compare like, oh, my CAC score is elevated compared to other people who are like me, but you know don't have these risk factors, for example. And so let's look at what happens in athletes, um, particularly endurance-focused ones, they tend to have higher CAC scores than age-matched, risk factor-matched, less active controls. So for example, in a study of 108 marathon runners and 108 controls from the general population, those having a CAC score of greater than 100 was 36% in the marathon running group compared to 22% in the general population. Another study compared runners who could completed at least 10 Ironmans or ultramarathons in 10 years to those who had competed more than nine marathons, but no ultramarathons or Ironmans in 10 years uh, to those who had completed more than nine shorter races over 10 years. There were no differences between the ultra marathon Ironman group and the marathon group. So they basically combined those two groups together. Um, 73% of the longer distance group. So those doing the ultra or Ironmans or marathons had CAC scores greater than zero, whereas only 21% of the shorter distance group did. On average, the longer distance group had CAC scores greater than the 50th percentile of what we'd expect based on national averages, whereas only 19% of the short distance group did. Overall, the longer distance group was 10 times more likely than the shorter group to have a CAC score in the 50th percentile or higher, and almost nine times as likely to have an abnormal CAC uh, score compared to the normative data we have for the population. Uh, finally, another study of 284 male amateurs found that those exercising at volumes equal to four times the current recommendations had a higher risk of an elevated CAC score, so 68% of them, compared to folks exercising at the current guidelines, which, uh, 43%. Interestingly, the most active athletes also had a lower prevalence of mixed plaques uh, compared to those in the least active group. Um, similarly, most of the active athletes had only calcified plaques compared to the least active. Uh, so Austin, what are your thoughts here on this sort of finding between mixed and calcified plaques and how do you interpret this? Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, there's kind of variation in plaque biology um, over time and some of it can become calcified, but it does not have to. It's, it's also possible to have non-calcified plaque. This is also sometimes called soft plaque, which does not actually show up um, as clearly or at all on some of these imaging tests. And so this is in part one of the reasons among many why there are, you know, some people like in the carnivore diet scene who like get a CAC score when they're like 35 years old and say, look, I eat this and my CAC score is zero. And it's like, okay, number one, again, I did, I expect yours to be zero at this age, but B it's also possible 
for folks to have soft plaque that does not light up on that. And that's something that is uh, in some situations easier to see on like a CT coronary angiogram or other sorts of advanced kind of testing that, again, I don't recommend people go out and get routine screening tests with this for. Um, and so it's possible to have that kind of mixed aspect where there's some soft kind of more lipid rich um, aspects to it and those that are more purely calcified. And, and so interpreting this stuff is really tricky for multiple reasons um, because risk varies between these things. But additionally, um, the uh, we've talked about this before um, in, in some other contexts, like with high blood pressure, where we talked about the idea of it matters how your, how your blood pressure got high. Um, is it like it's high right now because you're straining to do some exercise? That is different than somebody whose blood pressure is high because of chronic hypertension, for example. The physiology of that is different. The effects of that is different. And so I think that when we look at CAC scores, in the same way that I told you, I interpret them differently based on the context and the patient, if they're young, if they're old, what I expect. But additionally, I would be inclined to interpret them different differently based on this kind of an exercise history. If I see somebody who has a bit more plaque or a bit more uh, uh, calcified uh, plaque present or, or higher CAC scores, and I on their history, they're like, yeah, I have diabetes and I you know, smoked for 30 years and, and quit a while back. And I take a high blood pressure medicine and things like that, then I'm interpreting that kind of in line with like, okay, this is probably a reasonable predictor of, uh, or at least a, a associate of your, of your cardiovascular risk. On the other hand, if I see a similar CAC score in somebody who's like otherwise perfectly healthy and they're like, yeah, I just done a ton of exercise, then I do not tend to interpret that in the same way as far as it is predictive of that person's risk. And that's actually what pans out in a lot of the, the data on this. There are things that can make coronary calcium go up that do not cause risk to go up in the same way that you would expect based on, you know, standard risk popula uh, populations, those who yeah. have diabetes and smoking and things like that, if that makes sense. Would it be fair to say that given the same plaque burden, you'd prefer them to be calcified versus soft? I would, yes. So yeah. soft and lipid-rich plaques and things like that. The, the, the whole concern with plaque, um, a lot of people you know, have this idea that these plaques gradually grow over time and gradually, gradually you know, narrow the, the blood flow through, through the blood vessels to your heart, and that is problematic. While that can be true if that happens, that is not how heart attacks happen. Heart attacks mm -hmm. happen when these plaques suddenly or acutely rupture. So a, a sudden acute plaque rupture is the mechanism of what a typical, what we call a type one kind of a heart attack happen, uh, is. And so soft plaques, the lipid, you know, uh, the, the highly lipid rich ones that are not calcified, and also the ones that are not uh, completely obstructive also tend to be um, the highest risk for rupturing and causing a heart attack. Whereas more calcified ones, um, ones that grow to like, you know, pretty significant degrees, those tend to be stabilized a bit more and those don't tend to uh, rupture quite as often. So calcified plaques tend to actually be more stabilized and lower risk compared to their non-calcified counterparts. Yeah. So it looks like exercise tends to increase, particularly endurance exercise at high volumes tends to increase coronary artery calcification, the which is maybe a downside, but the upside is that those plaques seem to be more calcified compared to a similar level of plaque burden in folks who are not exercising. So score, score one for the good guys. Uh, so what to make of all of this? So CAC scores seem to be related not to exercise alone, but to the volume of exercise in a dose-dependent manner. The higher the exercise 
uh, amount goes. Uh, it seems to be the higher the coronary artery calcification goes. As far as why this happens, we really don't know. Uh, it could be that repeated aerobic exercise increases how often and how long the coronary arteries are exposed to turbulent blood flow, trying to get all that blood into the heart, out of the heart uh, at high, you know, high pressures, uh, which would drive plaque formation and subsequent calcification. We also know that exercise increases parathyroid hormone levels in the acute sense, which is involved in calcium metabolism and homeostasis, and this may be contributory. This, uh, again, may be at least partially responsible for the finding that most of the plaques found in athletes are calcified and stable, uh, not mixed or soft, as Austin was talking about earlier, which is known to be protective in the general population. In any case, we don't really have any long-term data linking higher CAC scores in athletes to bad outcomes. We do know that endurance athletes and those who exercise a lot have enhanced survival from heart disease. We also know that both increased cardiorespiratory fitness and higher levels of physical activity are associated with the largest reductions in cardiac events in those with the highest CAC scores. And we also know that statins increase CAC scores, likely by stabilizing the plaques via calcification and other mechanisms. And these strongly reduce the risk of cardiac events. Uh, so we really need long-term follow-up data in athletes with elevated CAC scores uh, to really suss out what this means. But I don't really think that the elevated CAC scores and those exercising uh, to be particularly worrisome. You uh, you agree, disagree, or shoulder shrug? Yeah, and, and, and I think it's worth like hammering this a little bit more because for folks who are not you know clinically minded or, or trained, it is easy to be um, – scared by a lot of this stuff right mm -hmm. particularly if it's if it's pitched or described in the same way as like having an elevated cac is not itself a disease that you should care about rather it is is this going to lead to having a heart attack or other morbidity or is it going to cause premature death those are the things that are most worrisome that we should care about and so being kind of uh, critical with how we think about these things um, is is useful here. Not interpreting all CAC scores to be the same no matter what across you know all people. If they come in with different risk factors and different backgrounds and different histories, um, it, it 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 it's easy to get a CAC score. But just because it's easy to get doesn't mean that it is like the best way to prognosticate somebody's risk long term. If that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, I think we can summarize and say that yeah, an increased CAC score in the general non-exercising or insufficiently active population does pretty tend useful to, yeah yeah pretty useful for predicting heart disease particularly in, in risky populations in general but an elevated cac score in an athlete particularly one who's involved in lots of endurance exercise we don't really know and if anything the data strongly su suggests no real relationship there but that's going to need to be studied further in a prospective trial on athletes with elevated CAC scores and looking at actual hard outcomes like how many times do they have a heart attack how many times did they yeah. you know have something like that uh, but yeah, it's just don't really know. And again, just like I said earlier on the myocardial fibrosis, I scoured the internets for resistance training's effect on coronary artery calcification and, uh, came up empty handed. Yeah. So TBD guys, if, Hey, if you're a researcher and you listen to this and you're like, you know, I'm looking for a research topic and I'm really interested in like heart stuff and exercise. I have a project for you. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Moving on. So that was coronary artery calcification. We talked about myocardial fibrosis here on episode 215 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Let's talk about atrial fibrillation. Now, we've talked about this on some previous podcasts, but Austin, can you remind our listeners, what is atrial fibrillation? 
Yes, uh, one of my favorites. Um, so we have uh, four different chambers in our heart, the top ones and the bottom ones. The top chambers are called the atria. And so that's where the atrial comes from in the term atrial fibrillation. And fibrillation is basically a fancy word that basically that means like quivering. <laughs> so instead of beating on a regular like metronome type, you know, sequence, the way the heart is supposed to, in atrial fibrillation, the atria, those top chambers that are supposed to deliver blood down to the bottom chambers are just sitting there kind of quivering, not really contracting or beating effectively, but they're just doing that, almost vibrating. <laughs> and so this can come from a variety of different things. Um, it's generally divided into atrial fibrillation that's due to valve problems or valvular AFib or um, atrial fibrillation that's not related to valve problems or non-valvular AFib. And that the non-valvular type is way, way, way more common in the population that I see routinely in in the, the general population, especially as folks get older, commonly associated with metabolic syndrome, diabetes, obesity, high blood pressure, alcohol use, and undiagnosed um, or, or untreated sleep apnea. All of those things are extremely common drivers of atrial fibrillation. There are lots of other things that can um, affect the atria. Um, when the atria get kind of stretched out, their electrical conduction system can, can get uh, irritable and that can lead to AFib. And so the concern with AFib, again, um, is, is not that, oh, your heart is just doing this thing, but rather what are the consequences of that? And the main consequence that you will uh, hear people dis discuss or the, the main things that we treat are a, to keep the heart rate reasonably controlled. So it's not, you know, going up to 250 beats a minute or something crazy like that. But additionally, and, and, and more importantly for most folks, is the risk that in that kind of stretched out a left atrium, typically that blood can hang out for a little bit, it can clot, and then that clot can get shot up into the brain or other aspect, uh, other, other areas of the body and cause things like a stroke or cause, um, you know, blockage of blood flow to various important organs. Um, or if, if the clot gets sent down into your legs can, can, you know, cause critical limb ischemia, basically like a leg attack, not a heart attack. So yeah. those would be some of the concerns of, of atrial fibrillation. You would prefer your atria to not be shook every now and again, you'd prefer right. them. <laughs> <laughs> and the last thing I'll say before we move on is that the risks of atrial fibrillation, um, this is actually data that's coming out like ongoing. I hear new data that comes out almost every week on AFib. And because what we're trying, what we're finding out is the more people use, you know, these kind of devices that tell them things about their heart, like an Apple watch, that's like paying attention to their heart all the time. We are finding way more AFib. And so, you know, the question is what, uh, determine what what is a significant degree of AFib because you can have it briefly in brief episodes um, or it can be more sustained um, for a couple days or it can be permanent all the time and so all of those things actually appear to be uh, related to different degrees of risk and we haven't found a clear threshold of like above this amount of AFib what we call the AFib burden is when your stroke risk really goes up we're just finding a whole bunch more that we don't know what to do with and so that's probably going to become relevant in our conversation here is like when does it matter <laughs> yeah yeah I agree uh, so the association between habitual physical activity, cardiorespiratory fitness, and incident atrial fibrillation is complex. Uh, two recent studies have reported that higher cardiorespiratory fitness uh, was associated with a graded reduction in the risk of atrial fibrillation. Uh, of note, these studies were done in the general population, not 
athletes, but it seemed like the higher amount of cardiorespiratory fitness, which is likely generated by higher amounts of physical activity, again, seems to actually reduce the risk of atrial fibrillation in the general population. Uh, this observation is actually in contrast to a prospective observational study in older adults uh, of a, this is a large group of long distance cross-country skiers that found that individuals participating at the highest intensities and or volumes of exercise were at a greater risk of developing atrial fibrillation. Uh, yeah, so this was not the general population, but rather cross-country skiers that completed a 90 kilometer cross-country skiing event. Yikes. Not, <laughs> yes, that's seems long. I'm not a cross-country skiing expert, but 90 kilometers sounds long. Um, a systematic review and meta-analysis of case control studies found that the overall risk of atrial fibrillation was significantly higher in athletes that can, uh, than controls with a 5.29 odds ratio. Now, also, when you see 5.29 odds ratio, does that yeah, get your... I'm paying attention. <laughs> that's, that's a lot. That's a lot. But again, the volume, intensity, and lifetime participation in exercise for actual competitive athletes is markedly different than the general population. So I don't, you know, I don't know how to square that with the gen pop. Uh, others have reported that practicing endurance sports increases the probability of experiencing atrial fibrillation by two to tenfold with the lifetime accumulated hours of vigorous endurance training, specifically being more than 2000 hours uh, in a lifetime, being the most powerful predictor of exercise induced atrial fibrillation, which again is complicated by like, it's like the survivorship kind of bias. Like, okay, yeah. so now you're older, right, uh, right. which is another <laughs> risk factor for atrial fibrillation and you've been exercising a ton. Um, yeah, can't, kind can't of, accumulate 4,000 hours of exercise if you haven't trained that many hours, if you don't get old. So if you don't get old, that's true. Yeah. So what do we make of this? Uh, as far as causes, it seems like the combination of autonomic. So that's like your fight or flight, uh, or rest and digest portions of your autonomic nervous system. So sympathetic and parasympathetic that how that changes with respect to exercise, also structural changes in the heart changes in hemodynamics. So how the blood flow actually goes through the body, um, the effects of high volume and high intensity aerobic exercise repeated over a long periods of time for sport likely impart some increased risk of arrhythmias in general, most common one being atrial fibrillation. We've actually talked about this on our podcast before. Um, I think these findings actually suggest that the relationship between physical activity and incident atrial fibrillation is best summarized as follows. For the gen pop, the majority whom are insufficiently active, uh, meeting or exceeding the current physical activity guidelines and attaining a higher level of cardiorespiratory fitness likely actually reduces the risk of atrial fibrillation. With high volumes of exercise, likely in the four to five times plus the current recommendation range may increase the risk of atrial fibrillation. But the only way to get there, you got to be involved in some sort of endurance sport. There's no way to like, yeah, I'm just going to casually do five times the the current recommendations of conditioning um, just to, you know, stay fit. That's just or, or that you're going to like squat your way there. <laughs> yeah, that's the other thing. Again, when looking at atrial fibrillation risk and resistance training, there's no real data showing an increased risk of AFib from resistance training. But those who attain a higher cardiorespiratory fitness level from resistance training, which tends to happen in those with relatively low levels of cardiorespiratory fitness who are just starting exercise tend to show a decreased risk because again, increasing their cardiorespiratory fitness from a low level to an adequate level seems to reduce risk. Um, yeah. Austin, how do you view like the risk benefit ratio of AFib and exercise volume? Would you actively dissuade people from exercising more because you'd be like, well, <laughs> AFib's a risk? Yeah, certainly not. And I, and I agree with your, your summary here so far. And then again, similar to the last section, I would point out that you know, AFib is a thing, but I don't want it to be the thing that people are like 
afraid of here because the question is why do I care if you have AFib? And it is mainly due to does it cause symptoms? Like are you having bad palpitations all the time and you have symptoms from AFib? You feel bad when you're in it. And then, okay, I'd prefer you to not be in AFib. And we have ways of getting you out of AFib with electricity or with medications. Uh, but the other thing is this stroke risk. And again, I said that not all AFib is the same, both from patient to patient, but also in terms of the burden of it and as it relates to the risk of having a stroke, which is the most dreaded kind of complication of it. And so if I have a 70-year-old guy with high blood pressure um, and, and a bunch of other risk factors um, who has AFib, then yes, I am very concerned about that. And I'm probably going to recommend that he take a blood thinner for the rest of his life to reduce the risk of a devastating stroke, even at the risk of him experiencing some bleeding complications, because we'd rather bleed, treating bleeding is easier to treat than, than strokes. We have those kind of conversations all the time. This stroke risk, which again is the one of the main reasons we care about AFib, has not been well characterized in like endurance exercise induced AFib. These patients are not at the same risk. Just because they have a diagnosis of AFib on their chart, they do are not going to be at the same level of risk as my more typical patients with atrial fibrillation for having a stroke. And so then the question is, if you get exercise-induced AFib from being an ultra marathoner, are you at equivalent or, you know, some significantly increased risk of stroke that would merit treatment with a blood thinner or something like that, or not? And that is something that is not well characterized, but those are the things that I actually care about above all else in this population. Yeah, we, we know that not only survivorship, but also just actual stroke incidence is far lower in individuals who are physically active, uh, meeting the current guidelines, and all the subsequent benefits from exercise. Uh, but as far as individuals who develop exercise-induced AFib and then are left like untreated, unmanaged, whatever, we don't really have that data to say, like, actually, you are at increased risk of stroke. Right. We have these like risk calculators that we use to try to estimate stroke risk, things that we teach our students and residents that you remember learning, like the Chad's Vask score and things like that. But like, I would not be comfortable applying the Chad's Vask score to somebody with like ultra endurance induced AFib who has no other medical risk factors, because that is not the population that that score was tested and validated in, you know? Yeah. Does there need to be a Chad's Vask 3 score that has like some exercise component right. to it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. TBD. Maybe we'll come up with one. Yeah. All right. So the final section here on episode 215 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast is about athlete's heart, athlete's heart. So athlete's heart is a concept in medicine that describes the tendency of the heart to adapt to the demands of exercise and sport so that it can support higher levels of performance by pumping more blood into the presumably more active muscles. Specific findings include an increase in mass, thickness, and size in some or all of the chambers of the heart. This was pretty much introduced in 1970s. I believe the study came out in 1975. The Morgenroth hypothesis, as it's known, uh, he was a researcher by the same name that found that athletes had a thicker left ventricle compared to non-athletes. It was then proposed that the heart remodels and adapts based on not only the specific type of exercise or training, but also the volume and intensity of said training. It was proposed that endurance training caused an increase in both the size of the left ventricle's chamber and also its wall thickness in order to deal with an increased amount of blood being pumped into and out of the heart. Because most of these adaptations were thought to be driven by processes that occurred during the relaxation phase of the heart, diastole, that's when the muscle fibers of the heart lengthen to accommodate being filled with blood, this was dubbed eccentric hypertrophy. In contrast, it was suggested that resistance training caused predominantly an increase in the thickness of the muscle of the left ventricle without a concomitant increase in the size of the chamber. 
because this was thought to occur while the heart was actively contracting, there goes shortening of the muscle fibers of the heart against a high pressure circuit, it was dubbed concentric hypertrophy. This matters per se because enlargement of the left ventricle's muscle size, which is known as the left ventricle hypertrophy or LVH, is associated with bad outcomes, general badness. So Austin, what can cause LVH, left ventricular hypertrophy, and why do doctors worry about it? Yeah. So as you mentioned, it's hypertrophy, which is a term that our listeners are familiar with. So a thickening of the muscle of the left ventricle, which is one of those four chambers of the heart. And it's the main one that actually pumps blood out the aortic valve and into the aorta, which then supplies blood to the whole rest of our body. And so the left ventricle has to push blood and generate enough pressure to pop open that aortic valve and then to pump blood out against the systemic blood pressure, which is the blood pressure that you measure with a cuff on your arm. And so an increase in that resistance that the left ventricle has to pump against are very common reasons why it gets more jacked, basically. It is like lifting heavy weights by having to generate more pressure to open either a abnormally uh, tight aortic valve that does not want to cooperate and open that can come from you know calcific aortic stenosis and, and other kinds of issues with affecting the aortic valve uh, can be one and then the other would be long-term high blood pressure or chronic hypertension if it is pushing against those things there are other reasons there are other you know types of ventricular hypertrophy um, that can happen that are less common that are genetically mediated that are due to things infiltrating into that muscle things like that but that's all you know more more niche stuff the most common common would be chronic high blood pressure. And then I would also be worried about somebody's aortic valve. And then I would then from there move on to look at some of those other things. And, and some of the reasons we get concerned about it is that um, that can increase the risk of developing things like heart failure, uh, arrhythmias or abnormal heart rhythms that can be potentially dangerous. Um, and, and there may be some relationship with sudden cardiac death in, in, uh, in some of those uh, particular causes of it, particularly the genetic ones, uh, for sure. Would it be fair to say that this is the only type of trophy that you're not trying to win? <laughs> you would, yes, correct. I agree. The, the left ventricle hypertrophy? The, yes. the left or the right ventricular type. I would not want either of those. <laughs> yeah, 10 out of 10 would not recommend. That's true. Yeah. All right, so let's look at what the evidence tells us regarding adaptations at the level of the heart muscle in athletes. To start, there are issues with imaging and how left ventricle muscle mass, diameter, and size have been calculated in the research. Previously, two-dimensional echocardiograms, a technology using ultrasound, was the gold standard for assessment. This was problematic because it used various equations to estimate the geometry of the heart, uh, which in short resulted in significant error bars in measurements. Subsequently, this has been replaced with cardiac MRI, which takes a three-dimensional picture of the heart and allows for far more accurate measurements. There's other technology that's used like real-time 3D echocardiogram, but cardiac MRI is one of the gold standard sort of ways to measure not only the left ventricle's mass, but also this chamber's size, the thickness, all sorts of stuff, just because again, it's a regular 3D picture and you're not estimating really anything. So what do we see when we look at cardiac MRI data on athletes? In absolute terms, overall cardiac dimensions in athletes are usually only slightly increased compared to non-athletes, about less than two millimeters or 10 to 15% increase in wall thickness of the uh, left ventricle uh, wall and a 10% increase in cavity size. So not too, too big. And a lot of these are actually related to body size. So like the size of a person's uh, skeleton and their height and their weight and everything else like that. The most accurate predictor of somebody's left ventricle size and mass is their lean body mass. <laughs> and so uh, there's actually been a push to sort of scale these measurements based on people's lean body mass or at a minimum their body surface area. Because when you're actually comparing like weights 
in grams of somebody's left ventricle, it's hard to compare somebody who's six foot five and carrying a ton of lean body mass to somebody who's five foot and carrying little amount of lean body mass. Yeah. And, that, and that's typically how these data are often reported on the kind of tests that I might order on an, on a, you know, an ultrasound or something like that and would indicate not just the mass, but the mass index, which is indexed to body surface area, which is calculated by height, things like that. Yeah. But in the athlete data, particularly that that was previously reliant on echocardiogram, that is not what they did. They and just so, did straight weight. Correct. Yes. And so a lot, uh, and I'm not trying to throw the baby out with the bathwater here, but a lot of the data uh, using echocardiogram that has not been allometrically scaled in any way. So using body surface area, lean body mass, height, et cetera, you're like, I have these numbers, but I'm not really sure what they mean, what they mean in addition to there being large error bars around the actual measurements themselves. Uh, so these differences that we were previously found on echocardiogram lie within the error for the echocardiogram itself. Uh, so effectively when they're measuring the, again, weight, uh, in grams of the left ventricle, the thickness, et cetera, it cannot accurately tell you what those th things are with any degree of accuracy or precision, um, that you can really use to say, Ooh, this is a problem versus this is not a problem. Uh, interestingly, the original Morgan Roth paper in 1975 used a one-dimensional echocardiogram, which is even more fraught with error. And so, again, he had an idea, and uh, let's see what the cardiac MRI data says to either support or reject that hypothesis. So cardiac MRI studies on athletes show us the following. Athlete's heart is definitely a thing in that the heart definitely changes in response to exercise. Wow. Duh revolutionary. <laughs> so with endurance focused training, oh, and I should also say that these changes happen relatively quickly. There was actually a really cool study. They did cardiac MRIs uh, every other day in a population that wow. started exercise <laughs> just to see commitment. like, what's the time course <laughs> yeah. in like these changes happening. And they were occurring yeah. at five days, seven days. That's pretty cool. Yeah. Hey, it turns out the body is readily adaptable or yes. you die as it turns out. <laughs> uh, so with endurance focused training, all four chambers of the heart tend to grow in size and thickness. The increase in left ventricular thickness is typically greater than what's seen in resistance training. So if you were thinking about just at, you know, just about left ventricle, uh, ventricular hypertrophy or LVH, you would say, wow, endurance training, man, really getting that left ventricle thick. That's winning that trophy. Uh, although the size of the left ventricles chamber also grows. So in this view, eccentric hypertrophy is supported, meaning that there's like a simultaneous growth in not only the chamber's size, but also its thickness. With resistance training, yes, the left ventricle gets a little thicker, but not by a whole lot compared to non-exercising controls. So much smaller changes that was than were previously reported or predicted. Um, and again, if you use a cardiac MRI, it's a much more accurate way to do this, uh, particularly when you scale it for people's body size. The left ventricle's chamber size doesn't get any smaller. Um, and one way that they actually characterize, you know, the degree of risk from LVH is this like wall thickness to chamber size ratio. So if you just saw a huge increase in thickness and the chamber size didn't really change, that ratio would be significantly tilted in favor of like, wow, this is like potentially bad LVH. This ratio is not meaningfully different between endurance and resistance training when it's actually been studied and evaluated by cardiac MRI. Uh, so concentric hypertrophy is not supported. That aspect of the Morgan Roth hypothesis of athlete's heart is not supported based on cardiac MRI data to date. Um, and of note, there are studies on resistance training uh, athletes who are using androgenic anabolic steroids, which show a significant increase in left ventricular hypertrophy, in addition to impaired systolic and diastolic function, i.e. heart failure in amateur strength athletes. 
the structural cardiac changes are positively associated with the dose of steroids being used, uh, but they do tend to recover, fortunately, after the steroids are, were discontinued. This study, I almost sent it to you, but I was really bombarding you with different links. Yeah. yeah. The average amount of compounds that people were on <laughs> was over five different compounds. The average dose of testosterone was just under a gram, a thousand milligrams of testosterone per week. And they were getting cardiac MRI images on these people, the, the Harlem oh, yeah. study. <laughs> yeah. And again, amateur strength athletes. Right. So right, yeah. like, uh, maybe not tell, worth. Tell me what your deadlift was, bro. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, and I remember this had to be, I think it was 20. Yeah, I think it was my last nationals, 2015. One of the guys that was competing in a weight class below me popped positive for 13 different compounds <laughs> on the anabolic panel, and he totaled 400 pounds less than me. He was just, he was just, I don't know, the mindset that you have going to USAPL with 13 things in your system. That's like, yeah, bro. like, like if you look, if you have like a pop, if you pop positive for like one, maybe like you know, incidental thing you can say, sure. plausible deniability there. You're like, I sure, didn't know sure, that was yeah. in my pre-workout. 13? Yeah. <laughs> no wonder you love that pre-workout, dude. Like, you just got, I don't even, I don't know that I can even name 13 anabolic steroids. No, I don't think I can either. Yeah. Like, or, or the PEDs that are banned. I'd have to go, I'd have to consult the WADA list. Although in retrospect, it almost makes more sense that he was not particularly strong because <laughs> yeah, the motivation, he, he kept stacking them on the more, the more things weren't working. Yeah. It makes sense. Yeah. So what to, what to make of this? So rather than two different responses to different types of training, I think it's more likely that it's a similar response at different magnitudes based on different goals and different sort of exposures because the volume of endurance training it tends to be higher than that of resistance training as far as time goes. Uh, and there's no Valsalva to prevent afterload that high pressure circuit that the heart is actually pushing against. And there's different work to rest ratios compared with resistance training. There are different adaptations to the heart and these are predictable. And so that's effectively what you're seeing is the stuff on a continuum. Um, clinically speaking, I think the finding of athletes heart on specialized imaging warrants a discussion of why the imaging was ordered in the first place outside of like a study situation. Uh, in other words, does this individual have specific symptoms, risk factors, or other concerns that warrant investigation? If not, I, I'm not really sure what to do with an incidental finding of like, you got a little LVH, bro. Like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, if I, if I, if I saw that in somebody like this, I'd want to a get a good quality blood pressure reading or a few I'd want to, um, make sure that their valve their aortic valve in particular is doing okay. I mm -hmm. uh, might want to see what an electrocardiogram looks like on them or an EKG, and then uh, probably ask a few other historical, historical questions. And like I said before, if I came up empty, I would say, carry on with your training. <laughs> and, and, and I think that the other take home here is like, there's a reason why we recommend strength and conditioning. Mm -hmm. um, I think there are benefits to both. And then even if you buy into the idea that there are you know, if that this is really negative or to be avoided, because again, LVH, just like I mentioned with AFib, just like I mentioned with the calcification, just like I mentioned with the fibrosis it is a matter of like, why do I care about it? What bad outcome am I hoping to avert, avoid, reduce the risk of? Yeah, I would prefer that you not have such severe, you know, hypertrophy of your ventricle that it leads to diastolic dysfunction, and you end up with heart failure from it. But again, like I'm not seeing all of these natural, you know, powerlifters, drug free, lifelong, developing a ton of heart failure um, from their from their training. But even if you were very concerned about those kind of things, you could plausibly make an argument to say a lot of those things are less likely to be problematic or severe or something like that if you just do strength and conditioning work. Just yeah. 
do the stuff. <laughs> Why or when you can and. Yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. So to, to wrap up this podcast, episode 215 of the Barbell Medicine podcast, talking about the extreme exercise hypothesis, we're going to talk about actual outcomes. So rather than just mechanistic studies or like proxies for health trajectory, let's talk about actual outcomes on individuals who do a lot of exercise. So one study uh, that looked at 661,000 plus individuals from six different populations around the world, the maximal risk reduction for all-cause mortality occurred at an exercise volume of three to five times the current exercise recommendations. There was a very, 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 cannot emphasize this enough, very small cohort in this study that exercised at a volume greater than 10 times the current exercise recommendations. And while they did have a lower mortality risk compared to the inactive reference group, this was not that much different than the optimal, quote unquote, exercise volume group uh, who exercised three to five times the current exercise recommendations. But of note, we're not talking about like 100,000 people or 50,000 people or 30,000 people or even 10,000 people. You know, the fraction of the world that is exercising at greater than 10 times the current exercise <laughs> guidelines and of that fraction who is was who was enrolled in this study we're talking about a statistical outlier here and so i don't know that you can draw any confident you know correlations based on this small set that is likely better explained by genetic differences that weren't tested for luck you know all sorts of yeah. things so just keep that in mind a more recent study analyzed a cohort of 130,000 plus individuals from 17 low to high income countries to explore the effect of physical activity on mortality and cardiovascular disease. Individuals in the highest physical activity group had a substantially reduced risk of all-cause mortality and major cardiovascular disease compared to the low physical activity group. Uh, this seemed to be maximized at about 112 minutes per week of activity uh, in, for recreational activity, although they didn't really define what that was. They didn't like classify this into sporting related activity versus recreational. It's just like activity. But these significant health benefits were reduced at physical activity volumes above 255 minutes per week. And again, I'm going to go back to that same thing. Of these 130,000 plus individuals, how many individuals do you think were exercising more than 255 minutes per week? We're not talking about, oh, 10,000, oh, 5,000. No, we're talking about hundreds. Okay. And again, in this particular sample size, that is not enough, in my opinion to draw confident conclusions from these findings. Uh, finally, another study on individuals with existing cardiovascular disease showed that those with the highest amount of moderate to vigorous physical activity, up to six times the current guidelines recommendations, had the lowest risk of premature mortality and major cardiac events with existing cardiovascular disease, mind you. Um, so these observations do indeed challenge the notion that more exercise is invariably better. Again, we have two studies up there showing, you know, hey, if you go to 10 times the current risk, or if you go above 255 minutes per week, maybe there's a loss of some of these health benefits. But these are difficult to really differentiate between a real finding that supports the extreme exercise hypothesis and a loss of health benefits due to statistical factors produced by the extremely small number of individuals in these groups. Uh, this possibility, this latter possibility that is really like a statistical aberration is supported by the following. Again, these relatively small amounts of people in the most active groups and studies uh, that found an increased risk in people who exercise a lot, uh, there's large confidence intervals on these risk estimates, which basically suggests that even statistically speaking, it's, you know, potentially due to chance. There's like a large potential uh, chance that this is due to just risk uh, of 
uh, error alone. Uh, the survivorship data and morbidity data on athletes exercising a lot do not reflect this finding of increased risk. And if there was a reliable, consistent finding of high amounts of exercise volume, particularly at high intensities that you see in athletes, you would see increased risk of heart attacks, increased risk of stroke, increased risk of type 2 diabetes, cancer risk, whatever, all-cause mortality would be higher in athletes, but uh, you find the exact opposite relationship, in fact. Uh, so to me, this seems like a more likely explanation is that the combination of high-intensity physical activity in the presence of known or previously undiagnosed cardiovascular disease is probably the major cause of exercise-related uh, fatalities or complications. And we kind of touched on that on our uh, sudden cardiac death uh, podcast. We talked about individuals who have like unknown heart disease who go out and sure. exercise and have uh, cardiac arrest. And it's like, how could this have been prevented? It's like, well, maybe if, you know, maybe they did get all their screening and, you know, just kind of unlucky yeah. uh, or they didn't receive the screening and we're kind of just on borrowed time anyway. And so then what do you, what do you do about that? Well, you train a bunch of people in CPR and <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> try, try to do better. But I don't, I don't know that any of these studies that are finding like an either an increased risk or like a reduction of benefit at really high volumes of exercise really convinced me that there's like this extreme exercise hypothesis, uh, that, that that hypothesis is true. I just, the small number of people doing that and the lack of like corroborating data, I'm just like, eh, I'd really have to see something more convincing. What do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I think that uh, I'm I'm probably in line with a lot of a lot of what you say. It's an interesting idea. I think that all of these things that we have spent a lot of time talking about are are worth looking at. But again, I don't want them to turn into the like disease endpoints that we care about, mm -hmm. right? And I, and I feel like I said that multiple times. Like I don't I don't want some fibrosis to become like the disease that we are trying to avoid. Rather, we are paying attention to these things that you mentioned in the last section, actual things that actual people care about. Mm -hmm. Like, are you living better and longer or worse and shorter? Um, those are things that people care about, not if there's some extra collagen deposited or some extra uh, calcium deposited, or if they have, you know, asymptomatic low burden AFib that does not increase their risk of stroke, or if they have a couple extra grams of muscle mass in their left ventricle that does not, uh, you know, uh, implicate or, or, or lead to a higher risk of heart failure or arrhythmia or something. So I think that like, focusing on the things that matter by way of these potential mechanisms, I think is a good way to like get at this question. And so obviously there's, there's a lot more to be, to be answered here. And finally, as you have said, to the extent which this may or may not be a thing, it is likely uh, not likely it is definitively only going to be applicable to like an itty bitty fraction of the population at all. And that, that that population that does really exercise that much, those ultra endurance, ultra marathon people, they're probably like, yeah, I'm down with those risks because I want to do this because I enjoy it because it's, mm -hmm. you know, I want to win, you know, the the double Ironman or something. And that's glorious to me. And it's worth <laughs> whatever because yeah. we've done we've done things that, you know, in our in our training that like, you know, Gen Pop would look at and be like, you're insane. Why would you do that? And it's like, because I want to do it. Because I want to do it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So take home here. The benefits of regular conditioning and resistance training to meet or exceed the physical activity guidelines by even a lot, three to five times the current recommendations and the associated improvements in cardiorespiratory uh, fitness, muscle function, and virtually every clinical outcome we have studied far outweigh the risks for almost all individuals 
specifically individuals with low physical activity and or low cardiorespiratory fitness levels and or low muscular strength are two to three times more likely to die prematurely than their physically active, stronger, and fitter counterparts when matched for age, sex, and risk factor profiles. Data on the various proxies for health that may change in a negative way in response to exercise, such as myocardial fibrosis, coronary artery calcification, ventricle size, et cetera, are interesting, but have not been correlated with an increased risk of actual clinical outcomes, ergo heart disease, adverse cardiac event, stroke, et cetera, just the opposite. The exception to this based on present data may be atrial fibrillation, but as mentioned before, the amount of exercise and sport-related activity volume needed to markedly increase the risk of AFib is quite high. In addition, we don't know that that actually reaches this sort of burden of atrial fibrillation anyway. Most studies show that in the general population, more cardiorespiratory fitness and more exercise actually reduces atrial fibrillation. So yeah, there's actually, a, there's actually a randomized trial within the past two or three months that was, I think it was called like active AF or something like that, like all the AFib trials or whatever dash AF, and it got patients with known AFib, again, who are mostly the kind of patients that I mentioned earlier with obesity and high blood pressure and metabolic syndrome and sleep apnea and alcohol use and things that got them exercising and their burden of AFib like substantially decreased and they felt yeah. better and, and things were good. So that's like my typical recommendation for most patients with AFib. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Not to like exercise less or like take fish oil, which may actually increase your atrial fibrillation <laughs> right. risk. Right. Right. So overall, I would say there's limited data supporting this extreme exercise hypothesis. I remain far less concerned with an individual's risk for exercising too much compared to exercising too little. While I don't think we should ignore any of the potential risks of exercise, I think we should be careful to accurately put these into context and not create a potentially harmful narrative that limits participation. You know, if somebody hears like, oh, yeah, look at these marathon runners. They've got increased coronary artery cal calcification. That's why I shouldn't run. It's like it's the same thing that you hear from the musculoskeletal realm where whatever mm -hmm. is bad for your knees. Some people say running is bad for your knees, so they don't run. Some people say squatting is bad for your knees, so they don't squat. And it's like, well, I'd rather you do both. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, that's a tough that's a tough train to send in the other direction once it's once it's gone. You know? Yeah. Yeah. What's the saying? It's like like BS travels around the world twice before the truth even has time to put its pants on. Right. Right. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if that's the exact quote, but if it's not, it should be. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. All right. So that's been episode 215 of the Barbell Medicine podcast where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. Special thanks to Dr. Austin Baraki for joining me. Uh, also, shout out to all of our sponsors who help us make this show possible. Please check them out. Links to their websites in the description below. And if you want to join us at any of our upcoming live in-person events, check out any of the articles or new content up on our various sites. Those are all linked in the description below. Before you guys go anywhere, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we keep bringing you all the latest nuance in health and fitness. For everyone here at Barbell Medicine, thanks for tuning in. We'll catch you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast.